have some wonderful fellowship together, uh, as well as to enjoy some great food and some wonderful music. The choir is going to be singing. Our praise band is going to be performing. It'll be a great time. It's next Sunday, 4.30 in the afternoon. Um, and directions to the Northwest Campus are in your bulletin. So I hope you can come out, uh, bring some food, bring some food to share, and uh, I know we'll have a great, great time. Uh, just a real quick uh, recognition. This past week, I was blessed to be able to bring Cody Hurd into membership. You know him because he sings in the choir, but Cody, welcome as a member of the church. So today we uh, continue in this series of sermons on Simon Peter. The Apostle, a faithful but flawed disciple of Jesus Christ. And we turn our attention to a story about Simon Peter that really revolves around two questions that Jesus asks the disciples. The first question, who do people say that I am? And the second question, who do you say that I am? This story is found in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, toward the middle of all three of them. And actually, in the Gospel of Mark, it's found right in the middle, in the eighth chapter, right in the middle. And this question of who is Jesus really is the focus of the whole Gospel of Mark. You can see the question in one form or another in every chapter of the Gospel of Mark. But it's in chapter 8 where the question becomes explicit, where Jesus asks it of his disciples. And in Mark, we see that the disciples struggle with knowing how to answer that question, at least in its fullness, which is exactly Mark's point. Mark wants us to know that you can't really fully understand who Jesus is until you've spent some time at the foot of the cross. So his suffering and his sacrifice have a whole lot to do with who he is for us. Now, Matthew and Luke, the other Gospels, also emphasize the suffering of Christ, and we'll come to that in a moment. Two of the Gospels tell us where this story takes place, in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, so about a day and a half walk. The name Caesarea Philippi was a renaming of, a, of an area. that was It was renamed by Philip the Tetrarch after King Herod died. Philip named it in honor of the emperor, Caesar Augustus. So Caesarea, in honor of Caesar. Philippi, named by Philip. But this naming of Caesarea Philippi was basically a statement being made to the emperor that this area belonged to him, that we are your people and you are our God. That's the statement being made in the renaming of this. Caesarea Philippi area is at the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is a, is a big mountain in Israel that gets snowfall and it's the snow and rain that channels its way down the mountain that ultimately ends up forming the Jordan River. At the headwater where the river begins to form as water kind of comes working its way off the mountain, at the, at the headwater, it's a beautiful, beautiful sight. The water actually comes out of a cave. And it's so beautiful that for centuries before Jesus, people would go to this spot to worship their gods. The rock wall surrounding the cave entrance 
had like little windows carved out of it where people would place statues making them shrines in honor of their gods. And there were actually 14 temples built around the headwaters of the Ridford Jordan. 14 temples all dedicated to different gods. One of those gods was Caesar Augustus, who was considered a son of God. If you remember your kind of ancient history, Julius Caesar adopted Augustus. He was, in, he was a nephew, adopted him as a son. And the mythology of the day was that when Caesar, when Julius Caesar died, he became a god. Therefore, Caesar Augustus, a son of God. A son of God. So this is the location where the story takes place. And it's a very interesting place that Jesus takes the disciples. He walks a day and a half to get to this place where there are all these shrines, all these temples built to other gods. We can almost picture the scene then in his place where he's surrounded by all these images and representations of other gods. He brings them and asks them the question, now who do you say that I am? Am I like all these other gods that are surrounding us? Am I like those for whom people build shrines and temples, but from whom people receive nothing? Who do you say that I am? Of course, that wasn't his first question. His first question is, who do, who do others say that I am? And so we can picture people who are around that area. Maybe they've come to the different shrines or the temples to worship people who are gathering around there, and Jesus is looking out at them and saying, so who do these people think that I am? It's an easy question for the disciples to answer. Nothing personal about it. Some say you're John the Baptist. He died. They thought maybe he'd come back. Some think you're a great prophet, Elijah or Jeremiah. And then Jesus gets personal. Okay, but now who do you say that I am? At this point in the story, I picture the disciples all looking down at their feet afraid to look at Jesus in the eyes for fear that he'll call upon them. Maybe they're out of the corner of their eyes. They're looking at each other, seeing who's going to say something. And none of them say anything. Nobody except for one person. One person says something. And who is that? Peter, Simon Peter. He's always the one who says something. Sometimes he gets it right. Sometimes he gets it wrong. Sometimes it's a little bit of both. But he's the one who says something. He says, you are the Christ or Messiah in Hebrew, which literally means the anointed one. Within the nation of Israel, to be anointed is to be set apart for a special responsibility, set apart by God. Kings were anointed to be set apart to rule. So when, when Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the anointed one, he is saying, you are our king. Right there in front of the temple dedicated to Caesar Augustus, the one who thought of himself as the king of kings and lord of lords, Peter says to Jesus, but you're the true king. And then he goes on to say, and you're the son of the living God. Right there in front of this temple dedicated to Caesar Augustus, the son of a dead God. Peter says, you are the son of the living God. It's a powerful statement that takes place in the midst of this very unusual setting. And that's how the story begins. 
But that's just the beginning. There's a whole lot more that happens within this story. So let's pause for a moment and listen to the story. Jerry, will you read for us? Our reading this morning is from the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So how old is the church? About 2,000 years old. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto thee, O Lord our God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Ding, 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 right answer, right? He got it right. We think. I mean, Jesus does go on to commend him, saying, happy are you, Simon, for this has not come to you through other mortals, but has been revealed to you by God. From now on, you, Simon, will be called Peter. The name Simon in Hebrew means one who has heard. So Simon heard what God was revealing, heard what God was revealing to him. And having heard what God had revealed about Jesus, Jesus then gives him a new name, Peter, which means rock, upon which the church will be built. Now, Simon Peter doesn't understand all that's happening at this point in time. Jesus actually gave him the nickname Rock the very first time he met him. But, but this is the first time where Peter starts trying to help, or where Jesus starts trying to help Peter understand what he's talking about. He goes on to say, You will be the rock upon which I will build my church, and no powers of the underworld will be able to stand against it. And I love that phrase, that idea. That there's no power that can stand against 
what is being built upon this rock that comes from having heard the voice of God declaring Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God. No power, no power on earth can stand against it. No power of hell can stand against it. And we know that throughout time, the powers of hell have tried their best to stand against the church. We know throughout history, there have been plenty of times of persecutions where people have tried to, to do away with the Christian faith through organized persecutions. But for every martyr who fell, there would be dozens more Christians who would come. And through those times of persecution, the church always grew stronger and healthier and bigger because there is no power of hell that can stand against us. We've seen it. A little over four years ago at a sister church, Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, where a gunman broke into a prayer meeting and killed nine people, including the pastor. Four days later, the church reopened for worship. A few days later, families of victims who had died were offering statements forgiving the shooter. No power of hell can stand against us. Now, Peter learned this in his own ministry. After Jesus had ascended into heaven and Peter has the power of the Holy Spirit and he starts that proclamation of Christ who suffered and died and rose again. The church was born. He was ordered to stop talking about Jesus or to be thrown in jail. And of course, he just talked about Jesus all the more. Eventually, he was persecuted, crucified. But here we are 2,000 years later. No power of hell can stand against us. For we are the church. The word church in Greek is ecclesia, which literally means gathering. We are the gathering of the people of God. A gathering of the people of God who have chosen to follow Jesus, this one who suffered and who died and who rose again, and whose spirit is upon us, empowering us to be about the work of God. And no power can stand up against it because we have the name of Jesus. This is an important thing for us to remember as Christians. I mean, we live in a world where there are a lot of people who are hurting because of natural disasters, because of violence perpetrated against innocent people, We know there are a lot of people in so many places that are hurting, so much so that it can become overwhelming to think about the sheer need that exists in this world. Overwhelming to think what could possible difference could we make. And I can understand being overwhelmed, but we're the church. And there is no power of hell that can overcome us. We are in the business of bringing transformation to people's lives, transformation to communities, and even transformation to this world. We are the church. Back to the story of Peter. So Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He gets it right. And at this point in the story, we can almost hear what's going on inside of Peter's head. He's thinking, I just got a big promotion, right? I just got a big promotion. Jesus tells him that he will be the rock. 
And I can imagine that Peter's thinking what folks had thought, his belief that had grown up over centuries within Judaism, how the coming Messiah would be one who would be like King David, who would come and who would free the people from Roman captivity, who would restore the faithfulness of the people so that Israel would become a light to all of the nations. He's thinking that Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem and be crowned king and he gets to be the right-hand guy. So Jesus says, I'm going to go down to Jerusalem. But Jesus doesn't then say, and I'll become king. Instead, he says, and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die at the hands of the religious leaders. And do you remember what Peter says and does next? What we heard read was that Peter rebuked him. That's an understatement. Peter grabbed hold of Jesus. He scolded Jesus. He said, no, that is not going to happen to you. He grabbed hold of him and he scolded him and he said, no, I think this promotion went to his head a little bit. And you remember what Jesus says in response? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. For you are a stone that will cause me to stumble. On the one hand, just a few moments earlier, Peter had been called the rock upon which the church would be built. Now he's being called a stone that will cause Jesus to stumble. That's a pretty big change in a short amount of time, right? A pretty big change in a short amount of time. This Jesus says to him, you will become a stone that will cause me to stumble. You see, Peter didn't yet understand what St. Paul wrote about several decades later, how in our weakness we are strong. We follow, we follow one who humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. And it's his sacrificial love that is the power no force can stand against. We follow him in his life and in his death as we live out that same kind of sacrificial love, recognizing there is no power greater in this earth, there is no power greater on earth than sacrificial love. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus says it seems pretty harsh. I mean, it seems like maybe an overstatement. But that phrase, you will be a stone that causes me to stumble, helps us to understand why this is such an important moment, such an important moment for Jesus and for Peter. Remember after Jesus' baptism, he went out into the wilderness to pray and to fast for 40 days. And during that time, he was tempted by the devil. Three times he was tempted. All three times had to do with him abusing his power. He withstood the temptation and the devil left him. But in the Gospel of Luke, we hear that the devil withdrew and waited for an opportune time. And the opportune time comes right after Jesus' last supper when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And remember what he prays when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prays, Lord, take this cup from me. 
He is struggling over whether he has it in him to be able to fulfill the very plan of God. Lord, take this cup from me. He is in such agony in this prayer. The scriptures say that he, that he, that he sweats blood. He's facing his greatest temptation to not go through with the very plan of God. Well, he overcomes the temptation as he says, Not my will but thine be done, O God. But back to Peter. Jesus does not need Peter to be the voice of his greatest temptation. He does not need Peter to be the voice of Satan, causing that stumbling block. He needs Peter to be the rock upon which he will build his church. And I wonder how long it took for Peter to start to understand this. We know that, that after Jesus' arrest, Peter ran and hid. But the Gospel of Mark, back to Mark, it helps us to understand. Peter could not get all of this. Not until he spent time at the foot of the cross. So it was then, so it is now. In order to understand who Jesus is, we spend some time at the foot of the cross, thinking about his suffering, his death, that sacrificial love, and the power that is in it to bring transformation to this world. Years later, Peter wrote a letter. We call it First Peter. In that letter, he says of us that we are living stones. Peter the Rock says we are the living stones out of which the church is made. You and me, we are the church. No power can stand against us. Thanks be to God. Amen? Amen. As our ushers come forward for our morning, morning offering, uh, just know that all the gifts you give